So if you're not already there, please turn to Psalm 42. We are taking the summer and continuing in the series in the Psalms. This is the first time we've done this as a church. We preach expositionally through books here. We've done three, ma- three major books here in our church. Do you mean to switch to that? That'd be better. I think there's gremlins or something that come in during the week and chew on our wires, so I'll stand still, which is my habit anyway. Um, we, we're continuing in this summer series in the Psalms, which, is, as I said, is the, the first time we've really done this as a church. We've, we've taught through three major books in our church. We taught through John all the way through, then we taught through Romans all the way through, and then we taught through Genesis all the way through. So we've, we've tackled three of the really most important books in the entire Bible. In the fall, after school kicks back into session, we're going to begin a, a new series in one of the New Testament epistles. We're narrowing that down right now. And if that jargon's not familiar with you, we're going to pick one of the letters of the New Testament and go through that. But this summer, we're taking some time to spend our focus, to use our resources to, to focus on the Psalms. There's a couple of reasons for that. Practically speaking, so many people are gone on vacation and traveling, and it's hard to keep up with, a, with an expositional series, which is just a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible. It's hard to do that when you're gone a lot and to enter back in and, and catch up. Uh, the second thing is that we feel as a church right now where we are in disciple-making and helping you grow in your walk with Christ, your love for Christ, that we need to help you in every way, and in particular emotionally. We've had a number of people in our church who've had a lot of difficult trials over the past few years, and it has racked them. It has been difficult. It has, it has tested their faith. Our people have gone through periods often of great despair and darkness. And some of you are there today. And some of you, even if you don't act like it and if nobody else knows it, you are very much there today. And we want to teach you that the Psalms give us a voice for our varied emotions, for our happiness and our joy, for our sorrow and for our despair. Last week, this week, and next week, we are focusing on the Psalms of Lament. We began our series by introducing the first Psalm, which introduces the entire Psalter, the 150 Psalms. We took the next three weeks and talked about the glory of God. Foundationally, we are to rejoice in Him. And frankly, that is the theme of the entire Psalms. The Psalms point us back to God in our varied emotions, that we are to live in hope in Him. But at least a third of the Psalms were written from the standpoint, from the perspective of despair. And we call these the Psalms of lament. I gave you a basic outline last week of what the Psalms of lament look like structurally. So we spent our week last week in Psalm 77. And there's a basic structure for the Psalms of Lament. The the first portion, the first outline, the first point of the outline of the structure is that there's a cry out to God. We, We address Him. He is the one we talk to. He's the one we take our troubles to. The second portion, the second point in the outline, the structure of the Psalms of Lament, is that we, we give our lament. We, we talk about what's troubling us. We, we give our complaint to God. 
The third thing, the third point in the structure, is that we then appeal to God. The one whom we have addressed first, we now appeal to, for he is our only hope. And this demonstrates to us how the Psalms of Lament are something more than just grumbling, something more than just complaining. For though we give our complaint to God, we turn it over to him. We fight for hope in him. Frankly, that is the title of our psalm today, Psalm 42, and we'll talk about that more in just a moment. And the fourth basic point in the Psalms of Lament, the fourth point in the structure, is that we demonstrate through our reciting, through our remembering how God has been faithful to his people in the past. The Psalms of Lament basically follow that four-point structure. We address God, we give our lament or our complaint, we cry out to him for help, and then we fight for faith by remembering how he has helped us in the past. So at least a third of the Psalms are given over to this form, to this complaint idea. Well, why is that? Well, we addressed this last week, but for the sake of recapping just a bit, it's the human condition, is it not? For those of you who are in points of despair today, anxiety, frustration, disappointment with God or with people, marital stress, parental exhaustion, abandonment by loved ones, fear of the future, you know, you feel it today that this life is, is difficult at best. For those of you who are essentially happy today, and by the way, I'm super thrilled for you, you know that it's coming, right? And for the rest of us who sort of live in the in-between most of the time, we have our happy days and we have our sad days. And we know that we cannot control it. And our emotions, because of that, because of our lack of control, can be all over the place. The Psalms, the Psalms of Lament in particular, are our way to fight for hope in the midst of a broken world. Recognizing our own disappointments, recognizing the global disappointment of all the sons of Adam and Eve, all the daughters of Adam and Eve, whether we are struggling or not, loads of people around us are. And at points in time in this life, particularly after you become a grown-up, you know this life is not all that it often seems cracked up to be. It's hard. It's hard to face our own sin. It's hard to face everyone else's. Life is difficult, which seems like a big understatement. As I said to you last week, one of the great weaknesses of the evangelical church in America today is that we act like this is not the case. But it is. And it's okay to struggle. It's okay not to smile. It's okay to come in on a Sunday and not really feel like singing. It's okay, frankly, to not even want to be here, but to show up anyway. It's okay to not respond with the obligatory fine when people ask you how you are doing. It's okay to cry. 
It's okay to be really angry. Your God is big enough to handle those emotions and so many more. And as we move through this short portion of our summer series in the Psalms and talking about these Psalms of Lament, we want you to feel that. That it's okay to struggle. And in doing so, corporately, as a church family, we become better equipped to help each other in the midst of that. Having the words to say to our brother or sister when they are struggling. Having helpful portions of Scripture to turn to with them, perhaps to sit and weep with them and read with them. And sometimes, quite frankly, to sit with them and say nothing at all which is difficult for us because, if nothing else, we have a hard time shutting our mouths. The Psalms give us words to say, truths to meditate upon in our agony and in our despair, individually and corporately. Psalm 42 is no exception to this. I remember being in youth group back in the day which are some of the best days of my life. I probably never grew a steeper trajectory than I did in my latter teenage years. And so I'm excited to see how God will do that with our young people. But Psalm 42 was a song that we sang. Some of you sang this perhaps if you were in churches back in the 1990s. Remember the song, As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after you. Remember that, some of you? I won't sing it today as much as some of you would like me to. Um, but I remember singing that. And I, you know, I didn't study the psalm in great detail back when we sang that song. But if you would have asked me what's, what's Psalm 42 about, because that was the title of the song that we sang, I would say that, well, it's about like desiring God and being happy. But if you read Psalm 42, it doesn't quite exactly come off that way. So let's read it together. And we're going to work through a simple outline of how to understand it, how to apply it. And then at the end, we're going to pray it back to God. So this is the word of the Lord, Psalm 42. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. So far, so good. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And now it turns. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. 
I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the word of the Lord. Originally, most likely, Psalms 42 and 43 were one larger psalm. They go together thematically and structurally. Probably in the original writing, they were one. But they had been passed down to us in the Hebrew and now, of course, our English Bibles as separate psalms. So we will just deal with Psalm 42 today. I think an apt title for Psalm 42 is the fight for hope. Psalm 42 is not just a rosy confession of desire for God. Psalm 42 is, frankly, not a very happy psalm at all. Psalm 42 is the worshiper of God, the son or daughter of God, fighting for hope in the midst of evidence that calls to the contrary. And there again lies the secret of the Psalms of Lament. They are not merely complaints. They are not merely the grumblings of the people of God. They are honest. They are raw. They are real. But they always turn back to hope in God. And that, my brothers and sisters, is the fight. As we said last week, our feelings of despair are real. When you feel desperate, that's a real feeling. When you're angry, frustrated, sad, depressed, distraught, those feelings are real. But there's something more real than that. There's something that is true, that transcends the feeling, and thus the hope of the Psalms of Lament, that though we lament, that though we struggle, there is a grand truth that rises above our complaints, and that is there is one true God, and He lives, and He is for His people. And thus the Psalms of Lament have been given to us as food for faith, as evidence that we can struggle and trust God And while we may not always come out on top right away, while the struggle remains and it is so very real, we can trust God in the process. But though our feelings of despair, of being distraught and depressed and sad and angry and frustrated and disappointed are very real, our God is real. And he lives and he sees us. And his arms are strong enough to carry us and conquer all of our struggles in due time. And we can trust him. A very simple outline today, which will repeat upon itself because the psalm, frankly, thematically, repeats upon itself. The first thing we see in verses 1 through 4 is the bitterness of despair. Starts off so very well. Verse 1. Beginning of verse 2, the psalmist declares that we are to thirst for God over and above all. This mascal 
And by the way, if you see these little titles that are above verse 1 of a lot of the psalms, there's a reason for that. Those were probably inspired. They were there probably originally. This was given over to be sung corporately by the people of God. We don't know what that term means, masculine. It's some sort of of, um, musical term. But the sons of Kor were were worshipers of God. They led the people in worship. Um, Many of the people of Korah were struck down by God in a great rebellion. Spurgeon thinks that perhaps these sons of Kor were those who were spared, who understood what it was like to be punished for sin, but to be spared by the mercy of the gracious God of Israel. Whether that is true or not, it does bring us to the reality that left to ourselves, we would never desire God and we would be in enmity and opposition against him for forever. But those who have been brought back to God through Christ... We know that he is our only source of joy. He is our only hope. I remember singing Psalm 42, as I, in tongue-in-cheek, said to you a bit ago when I was 16 and 17 and 18. And I sang the song, As a deer pants for flowing streams, my soul longs for you, O God. But there was something nagging in me back then when I sang that song that didn't seem quite true or real or genuine. I didn't feel super authentic often when I sang that song. What I'm saying to you is that if I'm being honest with you, I am not always feeling what verses 1 and 2 say. This is not always my heart condition, even if I say that it is so. So I ask you, Do you always long for God above all other things? If you're being honest, you would say, no, you don't. I don't. And to give you a little bit of comfort today, none of us do. At times we do. At points in our walk with Christ, we recognize with all of our hearts, with open eyes, that he is the only one who can thrill us. He's the only one who can satisfy us. But at other times, we're bored. Our hearts turn away. We long for other things over and above him. Money, fame, friends, family, possessions, position, security, and we come back to corporate worship like we do today, and we're reminded that a week can go by, or even longer, and our thoughts can be very far from God. But I think one of the reasons that Psalm 42 begins this way is to to give us a confession from when we don't desire these things. Do you not desire God over and above all? Consider a deer who is being chased by a hunter, perhaps even wounded by his weapon. The deer runs away in flight of fear, seeking security in the forest. And after running and running and running from danger, it gets to the point that it realizes that if it doesn't have a drink, it will die. For those of you who have 
spent any time outside over the past couple of weeks. We've had lots of baseball over the past couple of weeks. You know what that feels like to be incredibly thirsty. Uh, toward the end of Sam's baseball season, this is my younger son, um, he had struck out or something had bad had happened like in the bottom of the fourth. And so I look down at him in like the top of the fifth and he's playing first base and he's, he's crying a little bit and he's very fidgety and uneasy and then he, he made a bad play. He botched a ground ball or something. And I looked at him, as I sometimes do in my lack of tenderness as a father coach, and I said, what are you doing? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, like pay attention. Like, get your glove in the dirt and make these plays. You know how to do this. And he started grabbing his throat going like this. Like, making this guttural noise. Like, I could hear all the way behind the plate. And, and I said, what's wrong with you? And I'm, I'm angry and I'm sinning and I know I am, but I having a hard time stopping, and he said, I'm so thirsty, I'm dying. Well, he wasn't dying. Like, somehow, you know, his, his frustration over not playing well and, and truly the heat had, had compounded into this point where he felt like he was going to perish of dehydration. It wasn't the case. But we know what it's like to be thirsty. The psalmist picks this imagery, this metaphor of the deer being pursued by the hunter. The, the, the life of this deer is in danger. And the psalmist compares that to how we should pant after God, how we should desire God. If you don't desire him like that today, that may explain, frankly, brother or sister, why you are so thirsty. We were made to crave. We were made to have affections. We were, we were made to desire satisfaction. You were not made merely to be disciplined. You were not made merely to behave. You were made to desire. And out of desire flows discipline and behavior and morality. But we foolishly pursue change without addressing the heart from which the affections flow and stem. The psalmist understood this. So if this is not your confession today, that may explain your thirst, but it could be a prayer of repentance and crying out and longing for God. Oh, Lord, let me feel this way. As Augustine said so many centuries ago, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O oh God. If this is not your confession today, and I'm not sure that it's mine, may this be a time of renewal but the psalmist knew points in time when he lived this way, when, when he felt this way. And this psalmist was at a point of despair, knowing that there were no other resources. As I've said to you in the past, I think, frankly, a lot of us just scramble a lot of the time. We recognize that we're struggling. We want the struggle to go away, and so we scramble. We try to figure life out on our own. But God, in his great mercy, does not allow our thirst to be slaked by anything less than himself. He will continue to give you frustrating thirst until you come to him and find drink to satisfy your parched souls. And he doesn't do it because he's mean. He does it because he loves you. This life will dry you out. It will dehydrate you in every conceivable way. The Lord alone is the one who can satisfy you. And you feel that most acutely when you struggle, 
do you not? When life is sort of falling apart and nothing is really working and the scrambling intensifies, you know nothing can really satisfy but God. And he brings you to that point that you realize you're the only resource I have and so therefore the beginning of the psalm. And the psalmist asks at the end of verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? Spurgeon also says about this psalm that perhaps, at least he thinks, that the psalm was written upon the occasion of David fleeing from his son Absalom. Perhaps you know that story. Absalom became infatuated with himself and there were people who thought he was really great too and they elevated him to the point of kingship and he led a rebellion against his own father got to the point that David had to leave the capital and flee to the countryside, something he had not had to do since he had fled from Saul, not David's first time in flight. And perhaps it's true when even those who should have been most dear to David had turned in treachery against him. And David could no longer be with the assembly, with the people, and lead them in worship along with the priests. He could not come to the tabernacle of God. And therefore, this psalm was handed down for all those who would come up to Jerusalem later after Solomon built the temple and worship God there. Three times a year, Israel corporately came up to Jerusalem. It was always coming up, even if you were coming down from the north, because Jerusalem was situated at a higher elevation. This is metaphorical as well. They went up to Jerusalem to be with God at these various points of celebration. Celebration of Passover that God had redeemed them from Egypt. Celebration of first fruits that God kept them alive by giving them rain and growing their crops and bringing them again the third time at the Feast of Tabernacles, a reminder that God sustained them through the wilderness and would not let them go. He was their protector. These three times a year, Israel came corporately to Jerusalem to worship. And David, whoever wrote this psalm in particular, knew that feeling but had been cut off from it, and it cost him dearly. To the point that in verses 3 and 4, he was parched. All of his resources were gone, and rather than sumptuous food and satisfying water to give them what they needed, bitterness was their meal. As we read in Psalm 77 last week, sometimes we are so low in such desperate straits that we cannot even sleep. The psalmist recalls this same theme in verse 3 when he says that, Tears have been his food day and night. I remember at one of the lowest points of my life in ministry, uh, it was a very incredibly difficult season. i never forget, um, I got on the scale. I was in a weight loss journey at that point, which seems to be sort of endless for me as an adult. Um, But I remember getting on the scale of this probably lowest point of of my life. I remember the the day in particular. And I got on the scale, and I was down to like, it was either 157 or 154 pounds, which probably is not that bad of a weight for a guy of my height. But but I couldn't eat. That was a reason why I was that low. I, I had no appetite. I had cried a lot. My My tears became my drink. And their salty reminder was a reminder that I had no other resource and God was driving me to trust in him 
when others were looking down upon me and saying things about me that were not true, whenever I was suffering for my stand for the gospel, tears were my only drink and bitterness was my only meal. And sometimes I felt like God was very far away, whether people were saying it to me or not. If we're being honest, we feel like that sometimes. When tears are our drink and bitterness is our food, we wonder, where is God? Are you near? Do you see me? If you did, why would you put me in this condition? Why would you give me this trial? You ever watch your brother or sister struggle? And you say to yourself, I don't understand why the struggle is so hard. For if I were going through such a struggle, I would endure with greater faith, with greater peace and tranquility. And then you get yours. And it is incredibly difficult. And your brother or sister may look at you, at your struggle, and say, I don't understand why that's so hard. But God in his great sovereignty and his great wisdom gives us exactly what we need to reveal our inadequacies, our tendencies to trust ourselves our propensity to choose other things above him, to find satisfaction in inferior things, though they might be good in and of themselves, to bring us to the point where we trust in him and him alone. The psalmist remembered what it was like to be in a period of happiness, but this was not the psalmist's current confession. And so what does the psalmist do? Does he fold? Does he give up? As is the secret and the beauty of the Psalms of lament, he fights for hope, and that's verse 5. He starts talking to himself. He starts preaching to himself. And therein lies the beauty of the Psalms of lament. It's not merely grumbling, it's turning back in faith. It's fighting for hope. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, so I remember you, even though I'm in Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mazar. This is the northern portion of Israel out of which the Jordan River originated. What's the psalmist doing? Though his food is bitterness and his drink is his tears... He turns back to God. He fights for hope. Though his feelings are real, he lifts his eyes to a grander truth, to an all-encompassing reality that God is above the flood, that though we feel like we are sinking and will be brought to the bottom of the sea and lose our life, God is above it all. We can trust him. And though the trial... And the corresponding pain and despair may not go away right away. We fight for hope. And therein, in many ways, lies the secret of the Psalms as a whole. Let's turn back to Psalm 1, where we began several weeks ago. I said to you at the beginning, when we dealt with Psalm 1 at the beginning of the series, that it was an introduction to the rest of the Psalms. Let's read it now in light of what we're learning about these psalms of lament. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
people who don't turn to God, in other words. But his, the worshiper of God, his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit and its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Notice the contrast here. People who trust themselves, who reject the living God, their current life and especially their eternal destiny is one of despair. Honestly, destruction, hopelessness. What about the child of God, the one who fights for faith through the word of God? Though life will not always be easy, frankly, often not easy. God will sustain us here in this life and in the one to come. So, what do we do whenever we struggle? Though our tendency is to be like the evil ones who turn away from God, scrambling to try to figure life out on our own, letting the the relief off the pressure valve of our struggles, God instead wants us to turn to him, to fight for hope. And therefore, all the Psalms help us with this. Though our feelings of despair are real, God is true and faithful, and we can trust him. Again, in verses 6 through 7, we find the bitterness of despair. And you'll see this again, because in verse 8, we fight for hope. And then again in verses 9 through 10, there's bitterness of despair. And again in verse 11, there's a fight for hope. Verses 6 and 7, we struggle. My God, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you, even though I'm not in Jerusalem worshiping you. Verse 7, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Remember, as I said just a moment ago, the psalmist seemingly was in the northern portion of Israel from which the Jordan River flood, which was very important to Israel, not only as a border, but as a source of life. Water is important. We can't live without it. It is said we can live about 30 days without food, but only about three days without water. Water is essential for organic life. Most of us, if we go a few hours without drinking, can barely sustain ourselves. That's my story about my young son on the baseball field. But even the blessings of life that God gives can overwhelm us. Rain is good. Without rain, there's no corn or soybeans or crops to sustain us. But too much rain can bring destruction. Those of you who are visiting us today from West Virginia have felt that recently. Entire portions of that beautiful state were racked by disaster from too much water. The psalmist speaks of that here. He is at the source of the river Jordan, which was important to the people of Israel. But when the floods come, even the blessings can feel like despair. So, what does he do? He fights for hope again in verse 8. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. In other words, he's always faithful. At night, his song is with me. When I can't sleep, when bitterness is my food, when my tears are my drink, he is with me, and I will pray to him because he gives me life. And again in verses 9 and 10, we find despair again. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? I'm in the flood. 
and I'm on a rock, but the flood waters are swirling around me, and I'm afraid they're going to take me over. Therefore, I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, Where is your God? If this is true, that perhaps Spurgeon is right, that David is fleeing from his son in treacherous rebellion, his son was a traitor. He would have felt that those who should have loved him had turned their back on him. Some of you have felt that before. Losing a spouse or a friend who at one time was your dear companion and instead turned their back on you and became a bitter and treacherous enemy. I suspect that our brothers and sisters around the world who suffer for their faith would read this much differently than we do today. If you are a Christian in northern Iraq or Syria today, or Nigeria, or in other portions of our world, this psalm would read to you differently. It would fall on different ears, on a different heart. People who know such things say that more Christians were martyred for their faith over the past hundred years than the previous 1900 years combined. Martyrdom was not just something the apostles faced or the Christians in the Colosseum at the mouths of lions. Today, still, the people of God around the world suffer for their faith. So whether your enemy is literal or metaphorical today, we often feel like the floodwaters will overtake us and the rock on which we stand will give way. But what does the psalmist do again in verse 11? He, he doesn't leave it at the complaint. He fights for hope again. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What does this repetitive outline of this psalm reveal to us? It reveals to us that over time we go in and out of struggle. Days of happiness days of despair, followed up by days of basic happiness, followed up by the fear and the real oncoming of more days of despair. And frankly, if we're being honest, sometimes one day can feel like that, right? You wake up, everything's great, and by noon it's all falling apart. You get a glimmer of hope by 2 p.m., and by dinner time, it's all over again. Right? So what do we do? If we're going to be grown-ups, or those headed toward it, we can't live like ostriches with our proverbial heads buried in the sand. The truth is this world is broken. The truth is we hurt, we struggle, we deal with the consequences of it. But are we going to give up? Will we check out? Will we turn our back on God? That's what the wicked do. We are those who meditate on the word of God and pray it back to him, trusting him that he will keep all of his promises, even if, even if it doesn't currently feel like it. And sometimes, therefore, for some of us, we have to fight moment by moment. For some of you to get here today was a fight, and I commend you for it. For some of you to sit here and listen to me today, it's a fight, and I commend you for it. For some of you to leave today and go back home and to get through another week, it will be a fight. A fight for life and death, struggle, tooth and nail. But brother, sister, 
struggling pilgrim, I call you to fight. One day Jesus will come and he'll make it all better. There's coming a day when there'll be no more tears, no more pain, no more struggle. We'll be with him for forever. But as I said to you last week, in so many ways, these psalms point us to Jesus. Jesus who took the waters of affliction. Jesus who cried out in the garden, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus knew Psalm 42 because he wrote it. Jesus was forgotten and forsaken by God, taking upon himself the punishment of our sin so that we never will be, even if we feel like it. For those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus and confess him as our only hope for righteousness, we can turn to him and say, though it feels like I'm forgotten, I am not. You were forsaken so that I would not be. Practically speaking, I want to commend to you a book. One of my favorite authors is Tim Keller, who's a pastor in uh, New York City. He and his wife Kathy wrote a book called The Songs of Jesus. And it will take you devotionally through each of the Psalms and teach you how to understand them and teach you how to pray them back to God. And their contention in this book, this devotional book, is that Jesus used the Psalms. And they were his songs to trust God as a real man in a really broken world who brings us real salvation and real hope, despite how we feel. So life is like a roller coaster, or like the psalm says, like being in the waves of the ocean, bobbing up and down, sometimes high and sometimes low. Sometimes the waters are tranquil, sometimes they're placid and we can see for miles. Sometimes they're over our head and they threaten our very life. But, but... Our God is real and he is true and he is faithful and he is kind. And despite the fact that our lives are often shot through, that they're full of bitterness and full of despair, we can fight for hope. And that's what the psalmist does and that's why the psalms of lament are so essential for our fight of faith, for our pilgrimage, for our sojourn. So are you struggling today? Fight for hope again and again and again. Are you not struggling today? Buckle in, because it's coming. And tuck this away, and read it, and meditate upon it, so that when it comes, when the inevitable trial comes, and you feel like you're going to be overtaken by the, the life that you find around you that is so bitterly disappointing, trust again in God. Fight for hope. And I'll say this last thing, and then we're going to pray this psalm back to God. Help each other with this. Sometimes... When you are racked by despair, when the bitterness of despair sets in, you can't see your way forward. What do you need then? You need your brother. You need your sister to come alongside you, very literally, and help you fight for hope. So do that for each other. This psalm was a corporate psalm. They sang it together in worship and trusting God deliberately, purposefully. They fought for hope together. May we as a people do that. As we pattern that, we will raise children who can do that. We will have an impact on the world around us. Who knows that life is disappointing, but there's something about us, the hope that we find in our God. This has evangelistic discipleship appeal. So fight together. Don't fight each other. 
but fight together for hope in the one true God. I say to you, whether you are struggling or you are not today, your God is for you. He is true. He is trustworthy. He is your rock. And despite how you feel, he will never fail you. So fight for hope. He will be your portion, sure and steadfast, for forever. Let's pray this psalm back to God now.